this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. Utah's finally opening up more. My studio audience is back. My podcast is definitely an essential service. Your cheers sound funny through your masks. This is episode 54. In this episode, I will start telling the story of the history of the 100-miler. This will be a multi-part series. The 100-mile race is my favorite distance, and I was the 15th person to reach 100 100-mile finishes, reaching that milestone in 2018. Wow! Running or walking 100 miles in one go is an amazing accomplishment. Unfortunately, some people of today still mistakenly believe that the 100-miler was invented in 1974 when a man without his horse ran 100 miles. Contrary to the cunning marketing hype that has been proclaimed for decades, the history of the 100-mile ultra on all surfaces started long before that year. The sub-24-hour 100-miler was accomplished by hundreds of people before that famed journey in the California Sierra in 1974. The mile measurement has roots back to Roman times. The Statute Mile, a British incarnation in 1593, became adopted in the United Kingdom and later also by the United States. It should not be too surprising that walking and running specifically the round number of 100 miles came out of Great Britain and America. The concept of walking or running extreme distances has taken place for thousands of years in many cultures, motivated at first mostly to relay swift communication between settlements or armies. Historic stories have been found regarding distances that were further than 100 miles, such as Philippides' run from Athens to Sparta in 490 BC, a distance of about 136 miles. In more recent centuries, running footmen were used by aristocrats to deliver letters. Pedestrianism started in the 1800s. Aristocrats at that time had footmen, whose job was to carry messages from one aristocrat to another. It was only a matter of time until the aristocrats started making wagers on whose footman was faster. Thus the birth of sport betting as we know it. But what about achieving the round number distance of 100 miles? When did the 100 mile quest begin and how did it evolve? earliest 100 milers were solo attempts that were motivated by wagers and usually required the person to achieve that distance in less than 24 hours. The earliest known attempt was accomplished in 1737 by an unnamed journeyman carpenter. On the road to Newington, England, a half-mile course was marked off. Many wagers were made. The carpenter struggled to finish in under 24 hours and missed it by just four minutes. It was reported, However, the persons who imagined they had lost had the ground measured again and found there were three extra yards, which in the whole amounted to 600 yards. 
The bets were returned because the carpenter likely finished the 100 miles in less than 24 hours after all. Tell him to bring me my money. John Haig of Marston, England, was the next 100-miler walker listed in history. For a considerable wager in 1762, Haig walked 100 miles on a Manchester road in 23 hours 15 minutes, proving that such a journey was possible in less than a day. This trail is in better shape than roads they would travel back then. A paved road was very uncommon. The sidewalks were virtually unheard of. But instead of running these great distances, back then, people would walk. History has many stories of pedestrians covering 100 miles in under 24 hours, dating back to the late 1700s. Foster Powell of London worked as a lawyer's clerk. He became perhaps the earliest notable pedestrian in 1764 when he walked 50 miles in seven hours on a wager. A few years later, he walked 400 miles from London to York and back in five days and 18 hours, bringing focus on the idea of a six-day contest. In 1786, he sought to walk 100 miles in less than 24 hours and succeeded in 23 hours 45 minutes. He lowered his 100-mile time two years later with 21 hours 20 minutes. He was treated like a national celebrity. Robert Barclay Allardyce, or Captain Barclay, of Scotland, was born in 1779. When young Barclay was 15 years old, he won a 100-guinea wager, walking heel-to-toe six miles in one hour, which at that time was considered a great accomplishment. Barclay is recognized in history as the father of the 19th century sport of pedestrianism. He also was an officer in the army and thus called Captain. The granddaddy of pedestrian celebrities was Captain Barkley, and one of his famous challenges was also the most profitable for any athlete up until that point in history. Wagering on pedestrians was probably more popular than the sport itself, and Captain Barkley's $10,000 purse was to be the biggest yet, even for decades after his victory. What did he do to cash in? He walked 1,000 miles. But it wasn't the distance that was impressive, it was the time frame. He walked one mile every hour for 1,000 hours straight. Now he was capable of a six-minute mile, but that is still over a month of not having more than an hour and 48 minutes of uninterrupted sleep. Whew. Barclay took on numerous walking wagers and in 1806 he set his sights on the 100-mile distance. He completed the distance in 19 hours. His servant, William Cross, accompanied him and finished with the same time. For the early decades of the 1800s, 100-mile walks continued periodically, concentrated mostly in England. They were all conducted on dirt roads and most were solo attempts attached to a wager. In 1835, it was reported that a Native American had covered 100 miles in a day carrying a bar of lead weighing 60 pounds. In 1837, Jacob Shively of Chambersburg, Pennsylvania also covered 100 miles in a day. He was referred to as the Great Pedestrian. 100-mile races between at least two people began as early as 1847 when W. Jackson, the American Deer, and J. Bryan of London competed near Birmingham, England. What were these early solo 100-milers like? 
a detailed account was given for an 1842 attempt conducted in Newry, Northern Ireland, by an Irishman named Mullen. For his course, the ground was measured a half mile on the Belfast Road. He would do a total of 100 outbacks on this half-mile stretch. Proper persons were appointed who were to give the pedestrian check tickets on finishing each mile so that there should be no question that he performed his voluntary task to the letter. Mullen's journey started at 4 p.m., and he continued at a brisk pace for the first six hours, and he was reported to be somewhat flushed. By 11 p.m., his spectator crowd thinned, and he was fresher in the cooler weather. But in the morning, he was fatigued, with painful feet. Five blisters were cut off, and he kept on going fast. At the 22-hour mark, he said he was all safe. It was reported, He was loudly cheered as he continued. Four or five times during the day, he stopped for a few minutes at the grandstands, quite confident of his powers. Before the final mile, he stopped for six minutes and then completed an impressive finishing mile in eight and a half minutes. His final time is unknown, but he finished within 24 hours. A few early 100-mile athletes actually ran the distance. On June 17, 1861, Henry Howard, a famous long-distance runner from Portsmouth, England, ran 100 miles in a fastest-known time of 18 hours at Brighton, England. Previously, in 1859, he had also accomplished running 83 miles in 12 hours 25 minutes in front of 4,000 people in London. During the 1800s, America was introduced to the Tarahumara, the ancient Native Americans from hidden High Sierra Canyons in Chihuahua, New Mexico. Exploring expeditions visited this peculiar people who made their homes in hillside cliffs. The Copper Canyons are the deepest canyons on the continent. They're like four grand canyons crammed together. You really feel an ancient presence when you're there. It's the phenomenal geography of these canyons that has helped preserve the ancient culture of the Tarahumara. The Tarahumara are subsistence farmers. They're renowned for their incredible long-distance running endurance. Gringos and mestizos call them Tarahumara, but they actually prefer their indigenous name of Raramari. Raramari means light-footed, and that's an apt name to describe who they are. They are lightning fast on their feet. Uh, obviously, as runners, they can cover long distances and are super fast, but they're also literally light-footed in their, in their strike. They land on their forefoot and midfoot and glide across the trails. Visitors quickly discovered that the people had amazing long-distance running abilities and could run down deer during the winter snows. A very early mountain trail 100-mile race took place in 1867. The New York Herald reported that eight Tarahumara women competed in a 100-mile mountain trail race. The competition was between two rival Tarahumara villages that were about 10 miles apart. Each village sent their four fastest women runners. The course was around an oblong mountain located somewhere between the two villages. 
the runners needed to run around it 14 times for a total distance of about 100 miles. Guards were posted around the course to make sure the race was competed fairly. Crowds of people came from many villages to witness the event. The 100-mile mountain race started at 6.35 a.m. The whole bevy were off at the word goal. Amid the wildest excitement and the betting commenced. After the first loop of seven miles, five women were together in the lead. The only stops were made to accept prizes along the way, drink water, or eat pinoli, a simple gruel made of parched corn ground and sweetened with sugar. Heavy betting took place. Horses, cattle, sheep, pigs, goats, cats, dogs, and other items changed hands. After about 92 miles, only three women were left in contention. But by the last lap, one more runner fell off the pace. The two winners were received with the loudest shouts of joy by their townspeople. The women were reported to finish in well under 24 hours. At the finish, nearly everyone was, quote, on the ground drunk. <laughs> Edward Payson Weston was born in Providence, Rhode Island in 1839. He was not particularly strong as a boy and took up walking to improve his health and exercise. As a teenager, he worked for a time in traveling circuses. He was athletic and won prizes in wrestling, running, walking, and leaping competitions. When he was 22, on a bet, he walked from Boston to Washington to witness the inauguration of President Abraham Lincoln, covering 453 miles in about 208 hours. You're going to name a famous athlete in America at the time, uh, not even just a walker, just a famous athlete. Uh, the first name that would come to mind in the uh, mid-1870s would be Edward Payson Weston, undisputed champ. Weston always spent 110% of what, what he earned. He always was in money, financial trouble. So what he would do is he would get people to back him on big wagers for walking events. One of the most famous was uh, walking from Portland, Maine to Chicago uh, in 25 days, I believe it was. And uh, this was a $10,000 wager that somebody uh, bet him that he couldn't do it. And so he did do it and uh, he made the, the, you know, he won the wager and this is how he supported himself. During that walk to Chicago, Weston had his eye on completing a 100-mile segment in less than 24 hours. Prior to this walk, Weston had tried nine times to walk 100 miles in 24 hours and failed each time, once within only two miles. He could win a total of $10,000 for this 1,200-mile walk, but if he didn't complete a 100-mile segment in a day, he would forfeit $6,000 of his winnings. He was given five attempts along the way, but the best he could do was 91 miles. On that day, his feet were so badly swollen that he could not go any further that day. His shoes were pulled off and his feet were sore and discolored. He made a total of three attempts at the sub 24 hour 100, but failed each time. Some claimed that Weston purposely failed and was told what to do by his backers as various side bets were being made. Weston set out on his 100-mile journey, does half of it with perfect ease, but with nine miles to go, the men who have him in charge declare that he can go no further. Who ever heard of a man with badly swelled feet hopping along hour after hour at the rate he went? 
The next year, 1868, Weston achieved his sub 24-hour 100 when he covered 103 miles in 23 hours, 28 minutes, during a walk from Erie, Pennsylvania to Buffalo, New York on April 4, 1868. An immense crowd was in attendance in the afternoon to witness his arrival at the post office, having tramped through a heavy snowstorm and muddy roads. On his arrival, he was said to be looking as fresh as a lark. In September 1868, on a half-mile track at Rensselaer Park in Troy, New York, Weston lost to Cornelius Payne of Albany, New York, blaming his failure on the circular track, which he was not used to walking on. Payne finished in 23 hours, 23 minutes. Heaven knows I've got too far to go Starting in 1867, a 100-mile frenzy began that would last for a decade as hundreds would attempt the distance. It was written, All the world is on the go at the rate of 100 miles in 24 hours. By the end of 1868, some 100-mile races started to be conducted indoors in ice skating rinks. The structures were engineered to pull in cold, outside air along the ice surface while retaining some warmer air above. More often, it resulted in slushy ice. Race promoters realized that they could charge a mission for spectators and put on great shows to induce hundreds to come and watch the spectacle of these distance races going in circles. Converting ice skating rinks into walking tracks proved to be successful venues. Cornelius Payne quickly became a very prolific 100-miler, competing at the distance multiple times within just a few weeks. He was 22 years old, about 5 feet 8, 123 pounds, and described as a wiry, well-formed, unassuming, intelligent young man. In November 1868, he took his efforts indoors during a cold month in Buffalo, New York to the ice skating rink there. The track was about three feet wide, covered with tan bark, and the foothold was not the best. Boston also opened its new skating rink in 1869 to the 100 milers. The rink was located on Tremont Street and boasted the ability to accommodate 5,000 people, including skaters and spectators. It was said to include warm, comfortable rooms where polite attendants could always be found to assist in putting on skates. A restaurant like Skybox was fronted entirely in glass and offered a, quote, fine view of the ice surface and the entire audience. It was an amazing venue for a 100-mile match where young McEttrick of Roxbury, Massachusetts walked for 100 miles in 21 hours and one minute. In 1868, New York City also opened its massive indoor empire skating rink. It was 350 feet long, 170 feet wide, and 70 feet high. The ice bed was 200 by 130 feet. The structure included a raised platform for spectators and could seat 10,000 people. At its grand opening, 3,000 ice skaters visited the rink. This venue was the site of many 100-mile competitions. Cornelius Payne was gaining fame and kept challenging Weston to races. On April 20, 1869, they competed in a back-and-forth 100-mile race 
on a rough, hilly dirt road between Fredonia and Silver Creek, New York, a few miles from the shoreline of Lake Erie. A length of 12.5 miles was measured out. The two competitors would go back and forth four times to reach 100 miles. The winner would receive $250 from the citizens of Fredonia. Before the start, Payne objected to the start in Fredonia on the summit of a steep hill and didn't want to have to climb back up it over and over again. He also complained about the rainy day, which he felt would give Weston the advantage. Race officials overruled his objections. This historic 100-mile race began at 2 p.m. in a torrent of rain. Payne reached 5 miles in just 56 minutes. Weston reached that distance in an hour flat. It was reported, All along the line of the road were scattered horse carriages filled with eager spectators, and each house poured out its last inmate to see the men go by. Payne had a 23-minute lead when he completed the first 25-mile lap back to Fredonia in 4.59. The 100-mile race had captivated the town. Here the anxious ones were thronged in the street, in the windows of the houses and on the steps of the hotel. As the white cap of Payne came into sight, speculation began as to whether it was Payne or not, and when this became a certainty, many a jaw dropped. <gasps> But during the next 25-mile lap, Weston caught up and took the lead because Payne rested for 17 minutes. When Weston finished the second lap in 6.52 with the lead, he was greeted with tumultuous cheers. Payne was 16 minutes behind. They continued on through the night. On the last 25-mile lap, Weston rested for 9 minutes and only had a 7-minute lead at mile 86. At mile 89, Payne caught up and went ahead because Weston was resting, laid out on a sofa in somebody's house, covered in blankets at the 20-hour mark. He had been having chest pains and was examined by doctors who feared that he was having heart problems. They said it was sure death to attempt the remaining distance. Weston quit the race at that point. Another DNF against Payne. Payne continued on in terrible weather, with the wind throwing all it could at him in the form of sleet and rain. When he reached the 100-mile finish at Fredonia, the town folk were in disbelief that he had beaten Weston, who they thought was far superior. Payne still received cheers and finished in 22 hours, 52 minutes. Weston was very impressed with Payne's accomplishment, given the difficult course in such terrible weather. Spectators of the early 100-milers watched with horror at times as trainers and backers would brutally force their athletes to continue in order to win the enormous wagers. This is my brutality! On one occasion, in the Empire Skating Rink in 1870, Weston was attempting to walk 100 miles but was giving up. It was reported that toward the end, he gave out entirely, whipped along the ring like a dog, to prevent his falling asleep from sheer exhaustion. Blood spurted from the severe lashing he received, and a whip was mashed on the tired legs that would no longer obey the exhausted nerve force of the failing pedestrian. Reporters were horrified to see the number of spectators who came out hoping to watch brutal spectacles. The exhibitions were compared to people of old who caused their slaves to become purposely drunk in order to put on wretched displays in their intoxicated conditions. 
Another reporter wrote in Buffalo, New York, The laws of this state prohibit cruelty to animals, yet the worst torture that can be inflicted on dumb brutes can scarcely equal that involved in a worse than useless walking match. Though self-imposed, the task ceases to be voluntary when once entered upon. Trainers and backers will drive their victims around the track by a spur quite as effective and cruel as could be applied to a horse. It is brutality of the worst sort. In 1871, Weston was again competing in a 100-mile match. It was reported, The account of this achievement shows Weston to be a great donkey. On his 93rd mile, he got sleepy and had to be cowhided and ice clamped to his head by his friends to keep him awake. Lemonade, beef tea, and tonics were poured down his throat to keep him in time. He suffered terribly but kept on. His pallid face, set teeth, blood dilated nostrils showed his distress. Ammonia and whiskey carried him through the last mile when he caved. As early as 1777, women also attempted to walk 100 miles in 24 hours. That year, a shepherd's wife accepted a wager and started out on a course at Newmarket, England. A rich lady promised that if she succeeded, she would receive a salary for life of 50 guinea per year. It is unknown if the shepherd's wife was successful. Writers in newspapers were frequently rude when it was reported that a woman was trying to walk 100 miles. When Mrs. Harry Thomas attempted 100 miles in 24 hours in 1868, near St. Louis, Missouri, it was written, The remarkable feature of the performance was that the dame was not to talk. <laughs> they would also comment on their appearance. Mrs. Thomas is a rather small-built woman and would be considered rather good-looking. She does not look very strongly made, nor capable of the fatigue of such a journey. Thomas performed her walk in Concordia Park. A broad plank was laid out on a trestle or framework on which she walked back and forth. Quite a large crowd of spectators assembled at the park to see the start. With an elastic, buoyant step, Mrs. Thomas began her tedious march at 1 p.m. By night, she had slowed but continued without complaint. Watchers were left with her, furnished her with refreshments required, and kept a record of the time and distance as each hour rolled by. By morning, she looked very fresh, although her legs had swelled up and her steps were slower. At 23.5 hours, she reached mile 92. It being fully apparent that the remaining eight miles could not be made up in the concluding half hour, she ceased her walking amid the cheers and compliments of all bystanders. She vowed to try it again in a few weeks. Another woman joined in the 1869 100-mile frenzy that took place in America. Madame Moore was a female pedestrian from England who had accomplished the Barclay match of 1,000 miles in 1,000 hours at Manchester, England. In 1868, it was reported that she was in America and was being trained by Payne's trainer. She was getting ready for a walking match at the Rensselaer Park at Troy, New York. The male press was not impressed and criticized her for wearing male attire. Soon after, she was arrested in Rochester, New York for being dressed in men's clothes and was sentenced to 60 days in prison for vagrancy. She wore blue pantaloons and a vest, check shirt, sack coat, jockey hat, 
and her neck was tastefully dressed with a stand-up paper collar and a fashionable necktie. At her sentencing, she agreed to reform, and her sentence was suspended. A month later, she was in Buffalo, New York, the city that was friendly to pedestrians. She was licensed by city officials to wear male attire during her walking exercises. In March 1869, Moore walked 100 miles in 24 hours at the concert hall in the town of Oneida, New York. She walked the last mile in a speedy eight minutes. It was claimed that her actual walking time, not including rests, was an astonishing 21 and a half hours. There were plenty of male skeptics. Many are of the opinion that the miles were short ones, but be that as it may, the madam has demonstrated conclusively that she is no ordinary walkist. In May 1870, Weston attempted to walk 100 miles in under 22 hours inside the massive Empire Skating Rink in New York City. Many people were still skeptical of his abilities and thought he was a fraud. The track laid out for him on the ice bed was 3 foot 4 inches wide in a circuit of 735 feet requiring 717 plus loops to reach 100 miles. Seven men served as judges in shifts. Weston was very confident and said he would accomplish his 100 mile task or die in the attempt. He finished in 21 hours, 38 minutes, making only 9 stops, all less than 10 minutes. More than 5,000 spectators witnessed his finish. The announcement of the result was the signal of a deafening burst of applause from thousands who had assembled to witness the successful termination of the greatest pedestrian feat ever attempted. Mr. Weston did not seem in the least fatigued stepping off as briskly on the last mile as on the first. But for Weston, there were still doubts about his 100-mile abilities. A man by the name of James Smith, claiming to be the true champion pedestrian of America, charged that Weston's track was measured wrong, using the center of his lane. Because Weston hugged the inside of the lane on the turns, he clipped off two yards for every turn. Smith wrote, now I want to let the public see that this man as a walker is a fraud and an imposter. He challenged Weston to a 100 mile race for a $1,500 prize and he said he would give Weston a 5 mile head start. The match never happened but a year later Weston again competing in the skating rink reached 100 miles in 21 hours 1 minute. With more crowds attending the 100-milers, walkers made more efforts to put on a show. In a 100-miler in 1875, Morrison from Portsmouth, New Hampshire, walked 100 miles in 23.55. A reporter wrote, He walked the last mile backward, thus making an ass of himself. Fans frequently were at the 100-mile races. When Professor Sweet walked 100 miles in 22 hours 57 minutes in Connecticut in 1868, it was reported, During the last half hour, the band accompanied Mr. Sweet about the track, playing lively music to keep his spirits up, and sherry with eggs were given him for the same purpose. But the true attraction to watch 100 milers was to view a reality show of pain. 
Instead of being like the ball match or even the horse race, it becomes a trial of physical powers like the prize fight, in which the agony of the participants forms the chief attraction to the public. By the mid-1870s, the 100-mile frenzy was still in full operation in America. More and more walkers took up the challenges to reach the milestone. It is estimated that by 1875, more than 100 people, both professional and amateur, had accomplished the sub-24-hour 100-miler in races or solo challenges. The 100-mile frenzy would get even more intense in the coming years. Stay tuned for episode 55 and the continued history of the 100-miler. This is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances. <laughs>